When it comes to orchestral leadership, it's the conductors that get most of the credit, but even they answer to the power behind the podium. After 17 years as CEO of the Auckland Philharmonia Orchestra, Barbara Glasser has stepped down. Her time included a global pandemic, forcing orchestras to close their doors and to find a new strategy. Barbara Glasser spoke with RNZ Concerts 3 to 7 host Brian Crump about the orchestra's online COVID concerts and how she's looking forward to advocating for the orchestra as its new patron. Oh, I was in Melbourne working with the Melbourne Symphony as their director of operations and I'd had quite a long time with them as well. I don't think I'm one of these people that goes from job to job very easily or quickly because I was in Melbourne with Melbourne Symphony for 15 years before I came here. And... Um, Yeah, I was director of operations and prior to that, orchestra manager. So lots of experience in actually inside the business on that side of things. Why run an orchestra? Because those who know what's involved know it's it's a tough gig, a really tough gig. So why did you want to do it? I can't disagree with you about it being a tough gig, but it's also a really wonderful gig and a really satisfying gig. And I think, I can't think of very many jobs where once a week when there's a concert on or even more than once a week in our case at APO, um, you you get your reward. You sit in a concert that's incredible and you think, I was part of this. I was part of making this. And it's it's very satisfying when everything's going right. And it's a lot of problem solving when things are not going well. (laughs) So let's see. You started, what, 2006, around about then? Yep, April 2006. Were the things you really wanted to do to change when you took over as CEO of the Auckland Philharmonia? Yes, there were a few. I mean, the big things at that time, thinking back to then, the orchestra hadn't had a music director for quite some time and I've had had and seen experience with other orchestras where if you have too big a gap, it's not really healthy for the orchestra. So as long as you can find the right person, then I think you know, for me, that was quite a high priority at the time to find that next that next musician who was going to be our music director. So we were very fortunate in being able to do that within a fairly short space of time with Eckhard Stier, who came to us, I think, in my second year, and it was kind of immediately obvious that he was going to be a great choice for the orchestra. He got on really well with them. He The difference between the first rehearsal and the performance was really significant and everyone loved working with him at that time. So that was an easy and and very fortunate that we were in the right place at the right time. Um, So that was one thing. Then the other thing was living more in the town hall because at that time we were rehearsing a lot in our now defunct rehearsal studio in Dominion Road, um, Philharmonia Hall. And even back then for the state that the orchestra was at, then it was not really fit for purpose. It didn't allow for any artistic growth or anything to make the music better during the rehearsal process until we got into the town hall, which was usually not until the Wednesday or even sometimes shock horror the Thursday morning on the day of the concert. And the feedback I was getting from conductors all the time was these few days out of the town hall are just a waste of time. So that was another focus that was that was early on in that time. And then finally, you know, we had a, a, a real lack of confidence amongst the musicians and actually the staff as well that, you know, we were really 
a good orchestra just waiting to blossom. And so I think building the self-confidence of the orchestra was a really important thing that I thought needed to happen as well. And none of those are quick fixes, really. But we How got there. How do you build the confidence of players when you're an administrator? Question. Yeah, I think by by them having really good musical experiences with great artists and great repertoire and then getting that feedback. And I think most most of the musicians in our orchestra and certainly in any orchestra, I think, they're very self-aware. They're their, their own worst critics. And the the flip side of that is as they can see the orchestra progressing and getting better and better and every new appointment we made, you know, was another step up, that all comes together to sort of improve their confidence as the quality of the playing and the quality of the music making improves as well. Now, one of the things, Barbara, I remember, because I was living in Auckland before I came to Wellington in 2005, I lived most of 2005 in Auckland, and I got the chance to actually work for RNZ Concert MCing. Um, live broadcasts of some of the Auckland Philharmonia concerts. And at that point, you were still doing stuff in the Aotea Centre. Now, are you now pretty much focused on the Auckland Town Hall? And if so, why is that? Uh, it's a good question again. Um, we, do, we, we do do things in the Aotea Centre. We love being in the Aotea Centre. We, we're still there, obviously, in the pit for the opera and the ballet and various other presenters throughout the year. Um, I think in terms of acoustic quality for traditional orchestral repertoire, there is there are hardly any better halls in the world than the Auckland Town Hall. I've, I've been talking to a few people who think we should actually rename it as the Auckland Concert Hall. It's that good. And it just seemed like such a wasted opportunity not to do all of our concerts, all of our main classical music, classical for want of a better term, I don't like that term, but all our main repertoire concerts in the Auckland Town Hall. And even when we do things like our Matariki concert and some of our children's and family concerts, bringing people into the Town Hall, making people familiar with that venue as a fantastic venue, which it is, I think really benefits the people of Auckland as well. And you know, in more recent times, the Altair Centre is being used a lot more for uh, commercial events and conferences and that kind of thing. So sometimes getting in there is not so easy either. So it's it's actually worked out really well for us to be doing all of our concerts in the town hall. Is hiring a music director one of the biggest challenges of a chief executive's job with an orchestra? Yes, I think it is. I and really what, think it is. what do you look for? Because you could have somebody comes along and A, charms the orchestra... B, does one good concert, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the right person to work long-term with the orchestra, does it? No, that's that's exactly right. And I think it definitely you need to see a conductor more than once before you make a really significant appointment like that because really you are looking at a relationship, not just, a, not just one great concert. And Giordano, our current music director, was, was after his second visit. He came, he came the first time and... I remember our director of artistic planning, Ronan Tai, and I talked to him after the concert and we knew that we would be in a music director search in the next little while and we just sort of said to him, oh, you know, might this be of interest? And he's like, oh, New Zealand's too far away. I don't think, thanks, but I don't think so. And then about, a, I can't remember if it was one or two years later, he came back and he did the concert in the bar, in the D bar after the concert. He said to us, actually, maybe. And that was just like... Both Ronan and I still remember our faces just lit up and then it was like, okay, let's go for this because right. the orchestra, I had musicians just saying to me, this is 
the best we've had. He's really fantastic. He, we, I remember we were doing a Beethoven, uh, not Beethoven, sorry, Dvorak Seven, that in that concert, and um, a couple of the principal players saying to me, "We've never worked so hard on this piece." And the concert was fantastic. And the audience response and the connection between Giordano and the orchestra and the audience was also a really obvious positive experience. I think one of the changes you made, and maybe this goes back to that issue that she wanted to tackle of musician confidence, was instead of hiring your musicians as contractors, you hired them as employees. Why did you do that? We were a really, really long way behind remuneration levels in Australasia for full-time orchestras, and it was increasingly getting very difficult to hire new musicians and to keep good musicians in the orchestra because orchestra jobs do come up from time to time and we just weren't, the musicians just weren't earning a lot, enough to live on really. And so we just needed to fix that problem. That was another one that was very obvious to me right from the beginning. If we wanted, and it, you know, again, it comes back to treating the musicians with the respect they deserve. And that's employee model is how orchestras in this part of the world are employed. We were just the outlier for full-time orchestras. Does that not expose you to funding problems at some point? Yes, always. I mean, look, yes, because our fixed costs are obviously higher, but also it means we're more flexible as a workforce and we really saw that during COVID where, you know, we couldn't do this or particularly some of our hirers wanted to move a season from March to September or something because, you know, they weren't sure if we'd be opened up in March and being employees, we did have control over their, over the musicians' time and schedule, and so we could much more easily adapt. And we, we also, you know, when we made the employment contract, we made it really fit for purpose in terms of its flexibility and, you know, all these kind of things. So I think, yes, there are potential risks, but the benefits way outweigh the risks. You listen to 3 to 7 on RNZ Content. I'm speaking to Barbara Glasser, who is a retiring CEO of this orchestra.
That is the Auckland Philharmonia Orchestra playing Beethoven, the scherzo from his fourth symphony. They're moving into the trio now. A recording made by RNZ Concert back in May of 2021. My guest today is Barbara Glasser. Uh, Barbara was the CEO until recently of the orchestra. She was CEO when that concert took place. And that, of course, Barbara, was pretty much smack bang middle of the whole COVID uncertainty, which was something that was a challenge for you towards the end of your time with the orchestra, wasn't it? It certainly was. It was the gift that came, get, kept on giving for quite a while. <laughs> One of the things, now the orchestra was going to celebrate quite a lot of special stuff uh, in 2020 when COVID arrived because it was going to turn 40. And Correct. then everything got scuppered. Yes, it did. And that was really disappointing at the time. We had plans for a big birthday celebration concert. And of course, our Beethoven cycle, which was in collaboration with the Auckland Arts Festival, we were doing nine symphonies in nine days across four concerts. And that ended up turning into nine symphonies in four concerts across three years. Just finishing this year, in, in the beginning of open, Beethoven 8 and 9 opened our season this year, which was fantastic just to finally get to Beethoven 8 and 9. It was wonderful. One of the things that impressed a lot of people in the music world was that your orchestra worked hard to get out, despite the lockdown, with streaming, streaming concerts. And was that a conscious decision by you and your team? We were very fortunate that we actually had some concerts in our digital bank before COVID. And again, you know, it was absolutely a deliberate strategy and we had unbelievable view numbers during 2020. Um, we had over 4 million views, which was just crazy numbers. It was fantastic. Um, and yeah, we, we repackaged concerts. We experimented with different lengths of concerts. We didn't usually do like a whole concert, but we just had a fixed slot and we made it exactly the same time as if you were going out to an APO concert and we encouraged all our all our listeners and, and you know, way beyond Auckland, obviously, as well with those sort of numbers, um, just to pour themselves a glass of wine, make a cup of tea, sit down, turn on your computer or your iPad or whatever and sit down and watch a concert. And the sense of community that it gave people, even though they weren't together, at that time was really fantastic. It was We had so many messages from people saying, this has just really saved us. It's been such a depressing, it's such a depressing outlook and this is the thing we look forward to. So it was really, really gratifying and such a great thing to do. And we did lots of education work. We had you know, people filming themselves at home and putting stuff up online, lots of things for kids, lot, just so much variety of, of, of product that we were able to put, put out at that time, but based around the fact that we had actually been live streaming and saving our videos for, for a couple of years before that, which now, was just such you, a relief. Why do you started doing that, Barbara? Um, it's a good question. We just thought it was a good idea to do. We just, you know, there were some, obviously some other, we're always looking around the world to see what other orchestras are doing and whether we could, whether we could, you know, pick up on some good ideas. And so we had some early success with getting some sponsorship to help us with our streaming and Radio New Zealand came on board as well, which was really great. So we had, we just worked on that as a project and we were maybe doing, I don't know, three a year or something like that. And then when COVID happened, it's like, okay, we've got this bank. What are we going to do with it? Because nobody can do anything else. Of course, you've got, with the lockdown, you can't have people coming to the hall. 
So that market is shut down. But this new market opens up. That is, to some extent, the whole world is now. Anyone who's got good internet access, good Wi-Fi, can watch your concerts. However, you're now in competition with concerts with orchestras around the world because you weren't the only one doing this. So it was that in deciding to do this, did you... do you think, oh heavens, we haven't got a show against the Berlin Philharmonic or the London Symphony or, or whatever? I think we were offering quite different products from those orchestras. I mean, those orchestras are obviously fantastic and we never thought that we would be like directly in competition. I mean, for starters, we were doing it at completely different times of the day. We were, we were putting ours on as if they were a live event. So it wasn't like you could just dial into the Berlin Phil Concert Hall and, you know, watch it at any time. Ours was much more at a specific time. Um, so they were. we really marketed them as events, like a live concert event. Why did you do that, Barbara? Just to give people that sense of community and occasion and a definite sort of time of the day where this was on and they could feel part of the APO community even if they weren't in the hall. Getting four million people to watch you. That must actually be quite a bit of a boost to turn around to your sponsors and say, this is how many people have been exposed to the orchestra that you're supporting. So, you know, this is possibly money well spent if you're sponsoring the orchestra. Did you use that as an argument? Of course. Yes, we did. (laughs) And what did they say? Heavens, we've got to give you more money. Look, we were very fortunate. We don't know about more money, but I think we were very fortunate in that we really didn't lose any corporates during COVID, which was incredible, a great achievement for our business partnerships team. And, um, you know, really, I think people really did understand the value of what an orchestra can bring to a community. One of the things that we are starting to see now in this country is we're seeing an increasing number of world-class conductors from New Zealand. And one of the things that is now in place is the Assistant Conductor in Residence Scheme, which I think you're involved in. I think also the Dunedin Symphony, the Christchurch Orchestra Wellington. I don't know about maybe the NZSO as well. And is that all about fostering New Zealand conductors and giving them lots of work with pretty good bands? It's Yes, it's a bit broader than New Zealand conductors. What, what we identified and... and um, recognised, particularly during COVID, but actually we I'd been talking to Giordano about this since before COVID. Um, there's, there's not many opportunities for really high-level local conductors. And when I'm using the term local here, I'm talking about Australian and New Zealanders. And so we what we decided to do was open up a conductor in, assistant conductor in residence program for Australia and New Zealand. And in fact, that's worked really well. Um, and, and what it does is just build the capability of the region to have really good conductors around. And we've, we're very fortunately, um, our very first, and, and it's a competitive process to win to win this position, and our very first conductor was Vincent Hardacre, who, of course, is a Kiwi. So that was a really lovely um, a, a really lovely thing. But even though the two that we've had since then, uh, Leonard Weiss and our current conductor, um, Nathaniel Griffiths, they're, they're both turning into huge advocates for the APO and for New Zealand and getting exposure to orchestras here. And I think that will stand us in, stand the whole region in really good stead. So I think all of those kind of things, and it's the same with auditions and, you know, other visiting artists, I think we've got to look more broadly than 
at only New Zealand. I think we need to consider ourselves as part of a much bigger region and be looking at how we can contribute to the region and how we can bring people in and give them give them some experience and it benefits everybody. It's exactly the same, you know, like Giordano is now conducting regularly in Australia and apart from, you know, the, the fantastic opportunity the Australians have to see our conductor, it actually raises the awareness and the appreciation of the APO, even though at the time he's conducting in Australia, he's actually not conducting us, obviously, if that makes sense. There's no doubt that the standard of orchestral playing in the country is improving. I mean, if I think about the sounds that I was hearing when I came back from Australia and even when I came back from the United Kingdom earlier and what I hear now, the standard is lifting everywhere, including the Auckland Philharmonia. But there is also maybe on the horizon a difficult state funding scenario. Even the current government saying we're going to cut spending and if the National Party gets in, they want to cut spending... And you start thinking, well, is there going to be room for, say, four top class if we Auckland, Christchurch, Wellington and the NZSO? Is there going to be room for four top class orchestras in New Zealand if they're all going to be relying on the state to survive? I think I think there is room, actually. And I think, like, even in... If you take... I mean, look, I can't really speak for the other cities. I can really only speak for Auckland. But certainly... The APO has a very different role in the city from what the NZSO does when they come to Auckland. You know, we are here all the time. We're embedded in the city. We've got regular contact with with schools and community groups and all that kind of thing, and we're a year-round part of the community here. And that's something that I think a city-based orchestra can, can does exceptionally well, and only a city-based orchestra can really do that. And, and, you know, the, the ownership of the people of Auckland for the APO is really significant and part of the reason that we've got such a strong following now. Looking back on your time as CEO, do you have any regrets? <sighs> Depends which day you ask me, Brian. But no, in, th- no, in general, absolutely not. I've had, it's been such a privilege to, to have this job and to see the growth and development of the orchestra and to hear them play every week. It's just been a total joy. No regrets. It's just been fantastic. How difficult were the renovations of Sir James Wallace, his sex offending, given he was such a prominent supporter of the orchestra? Oh, I think they were difficult right across Auckland, actually, or right across New Zealand, rather. I think everyone struggled with how to respond. You know, we... we hadn't had contact with James for a while before the allegations came out and everything. So, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's tricky, but the direction was very clear to me of what we needed to do, which was, you know, put a line in the sand immediately. Is, there, is that one of the dangers of having private sponsorship? Is that there is that possibility that somebody will use their money to kind of ingratiate themselves with the community? Of course, it's always a danger in any way. You see it across many different fields, not just in, not just in music and not, and not just in the arts. I mean, you know, power is always something that can corrupt if it's in the wrong hands. And this is, a diff- this is certainly a very significant form of that. But it's not a reason for state funding only? Um, we we actually like our model of keeping really keen and um, 
innovative and trying to, you know, having a mixed model economy, I think, works really well in Auckland. I I don't think I would like to see us entirely state-funded. A bit more would be nice, I agree, (laughs) I have to say, but... You know, I think it's good that we've got it, that we've got those relationships, and people in the community really feel like they're making a contribution. Now you're a patron of the Auckland Philharmonia. What does a patron do? Uh, this is a very interesting question. A, a, a patron is someone who can advocate for the orchestra. It's it's something that was gifted to me because of the role that I've had, and you know, which I feel really funny saying that because actually, I think actually. Auckland and the APO has given me at least as much as I've given them. Um, but it's some, it's just a way I can continue to advocate and contribute to the orchestra in a different kind of way. Did you grow up in Auckland, Barbara? No, I grew up in Melbourne. Right. So th- this is a, a new home. And I mean, you could have gone back to Melbourne. Did you think about going back to Melbourne? Oh, we're here for now. So, yeah, just taking it taking it slowly. But definitely Auckland is home. So, you know, not planning on any moves. As well as being a music organiser, are you a musician? I'm a musician in a past life and hopefully as I get a little bit more time I'll, I'll get to pick up my trumpet again. Ah, is but that I what you're playing? It is. <laughs> I'd put it in the past tense at the moment, not the present tense. But so you yes. haven't actually picked it up yet? I have picked it up here occasionally, including for APO community plans, which was great fun and realize, made me realise very much how it's not possible to put, put a brass instrument down for a long time and then pick it up and expect anything to happen. So that'll be a long project to get my playing back to some sort of level. Would you recommend to a friend, somebody who might be interested in running an orchestra, the job of CEO? A hundred percent, Yeah. It's really exciting. It's really satisfying. You meet so many interesting and wonderful musicians and so many interesting and wonderful people and you're part of a great team that achieves much more than the individuals can individually. And this is a musical form, classical music or whatever you call it, that's alive well and truly? Going to be alive at the end of the century? Yes, I would hope so. Yes, I think you know the role of orchestras has definitely changed. Even in the time that I've been here, there's a lot more focus, rightly I think, on inclusivity with um, First Nations cultures in New Zealand here and also overseas with their cultures. And you know the role that music can play in for young people, I think, is is really significant. And you know, I, I really hope that. New Zealand keeps that focus on on the importance of music education and arts education because it's what makes a human human.